I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm talking to my colleague James Meek, a contributing editor at the LRB who reported from Kiev for The Guardian in the early 1990s and was for many years that paper's Moscow correspondent. He also reported from Afghanistan and Iraq when the US and UK invaded those countries. His fifth novel, To Calais in Ordinary Time, came out in 2019. We last spoke on this podcast, I think, a year ago when James had written about the situation in Mykolaiv and Kherson last summer. He returned to Kiev a few weeks ago and has a piece in the current issue of the paper reporting from the Ukrainian capital. Hello, James, and thank you very much for joining me again. Nice to be here. So it's now more than 17 months or more than 76 weeks, or The Guardian has it counts by days on its website, more than 530 days since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. So the war goes on, but as you make clear in your piece, life goes on too? Yes, very much so. Very much so. I mean, for me, to go back to... Kiev now uh, is is to see different layers of of change. When I spent time in the capital, you mentioned my visit to Mykolaiv last year, and then I, I just quickly passed through Kiev. But uh, I was in Kiev um, literally the day before the war began. Um, I got the last flight out, and uh, then it was winter. And and Kiev never looks its best in uh, in the middle of winter. Uh, in February, but in summertime, the city very much comes into its own, uh, and it's 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 very beautiful. It's very green. But for me, having lived there in the nineties, um, I, I have to deal with these two sets of change. I have to deal with all the uh, changes which seem remarkable to me um, of peace. Uh, the changes between nineteen uh, nineties and uh, the, the the pre-war Kiev, um, and the changes that have been brought about. By by war, so I I made a little pilgrimage to one of the uh, to the first flat where I I used to live um, in uh, in 1992, uh, and uh, the city was was really quite grotty in those days, uh, quite uh, uh, run down and and sad and shabby, and parts of it still are uh, you know as as in all cities, but it it is remarkable how. Uh, before the war, the uh, it had been smartened up and uh, and many new amenities introduced and some old amenities, old amenities taken away, like the, the trams that used to run through the city centre have, have sadly disappeared. Uh, but there, just next to my to my flat, this this food market where I used to go uh, has now been in completely enclosed with an air conditioned bubble. Um, and uh, right next to this very kind of seedy uh, five-story block of, of kind of Khrushchev area um, flats, they've built this enormous skyscraper, an apartment block. They just kind of, it looked as if it had just been landed from space and kind of rammed into the ground. Um, so that was quite 
quite startling and, and a sign of, of a sort of prosperity um, and a kind of uh, uh, nouveau riche panache of, of building things, not necessarily always in the in the best place. Um, but so you have that. And I, and I mentioned that because um, uh, you have these other changes as well, of course, brought about by the by the war, this sense of the city being less peopled, less populated uh, of, of some of those who left uh, in the early uh, weeks of the war, not having come back. Uh, I, I can't say that I would have immediately noticed that there were more women than men. Um, I, I, it's not obvious that the that the kind of the gender balance has changed, um, and, and of course there the might be fewer men in Kiev if uh, if it were possible if they were allowed to leave the country, uh, but they're not. So you, you do look around and you know that this is a is a country in a state of extreme stress and tension and difficulty uh, and fear and and guilt. Um, amongst the civilians for not being on the front line, uh, and and yet you think, well, look, here are all these young men. There's a there's a there's a battalion. There's a battalion. There's a battalion. Um, it's it's there is this idea that uh, Russia has this vast pool of of men available to be called up, and and Ukraine doesn't. Uh, well, it it hasn't quite it hasn't quite come to that. Uh, that there are these stories circulating in Ukraine, some of them. Uh, promoted by by sort of pro-Russian elements, but um, but mostly uh, just just rumours that people are being seized on the street um, and taken off to to recruitment centres. And certainly that did happen in Russia. I don't really see any evidence that it's happened in Ukraine. They just they don't really need to at this stage. And I the only reports plausible reports I've seen of people being uh, being sort of press ganged into the army um, are that in certain areas where you have these corrupt um, these corrupt recruitment offices which will take money in order to uh, prevent somebody being conscripted uh, they they've done this every once in a while just to frighten people uh, into into paying the bribes uh, but really Kiev is um, is surprisingly to to uh, an outsider, surprisingly peaceful, surprisingly calm, surprisingly a place where life just seems to be going on as normal, uh, and and it's only uh, if if you scratch the surface and start talking to people that you realise the uh, the stress that they're under. There are still these um, uh, these regular attacks on the city from the air, um, missiles, rockets, drones, uh, but they are they are few. They're enough to interrupt your sleep with the with the sirens, but uh, they're not really enough to interfere in the pattern of daily life in the city. Uh, and, and as extreme and savage as they can be, while I was there, there was one attack that killed that killed five people um, and, and ruined a, an apartment block. Um, it's still, you know, in a big city, whether it's it's Kiev or, or London or, or New York, uh, these emergencies take place and they're usually not on your block and they're usually not on your district. Uh, oh, yes, there was a fire last night and people got killed. Uh, we heard the sirens, uh, but it's, it's happening somewhere far away and it just becomes part of the, of, of the fabric of, of life in the city. Did you ring your old doorbell? 
when you went back to where you used to live. <laughs> I actually went up to, to the doorbell. I mean, the thing about my time in Kiev was I was there for two and a half years, but um, I lived in many, many different flats. So a, a full tour would have taken a long time. Uh, no, I didn't ring the doorbell. I, it's just just a, an ordinary um, an ordinary block. When you were writing about Kiev shortly before, uh, in the week before the invasion in February 2022, and it seemed likely or possible, more than possible, that Russia would invade... Um, you wrote about sort of the two possible versions of the city that you you had to bear in mind that you that you called them Kiev Alpha and Kiev Beta, one where the war never came, the peaceful city that you've partly been describing just now, though with the changes the way it's changed since the nineteen nineties, and then the other imagined city under under Russian assault. But the the city that you've recently returned from and that you're talking about now it doesn't sound quite like either of those possible versions or some or, or it's a mixture of the two of them it's sort of a Kiev gamma that it's them yes. superimposed on one another yes yes no in, in many ways it is more like uh Kiev alpha um and and the Kiev beta of of um continual destruction from the air and this kind of war of the world sort of destruction um that has had its its moments i, I think there have been times when uh particularly um, on those few occasions when the very centre of the city has been attacked. Um, it, it doesn't take much to switch from one to the other. And, and I fear that in the future, um, that, that Kiev is it's still lurking there. It's still a, it's still a, a horrible possibility. Uh, but for the time being, the war has receded and uh, people cling to uh not just to normality but uh i mean why did i why did i go to kiev when i could have gone to places that are much closer to the front line i i could have gone to places that are suffering much worse to cities like kherson um to cities like uh zaporizhia or Kharkov, which are much, much closer to the fighting and, and are still almost um, or sometimes literally within shell range of, of Russians. Or I could have gone to the actual front line and, and uh, spent time with the troops. I, I wanted to um, to go to the, for, for now, the greater part of, of Ukraine, which is still um, some distance away from the fighting and has this, this veneer of, of normality. Uh, and I felt that I could um, I could perhaps reach people there, but also reach uh, the readers of the London Review of Books, uh, the listeners of this podcast, uh, by talking to people who were perhaps more like them, um, who who were um, middle class, university educated um, people who um, weren't merely preoccupied with with day to day survival. Um, but uh, were um, sort of had one foot in the world of peace and one foot in the world of war. You describe going to an art exhibition, to a concert, to a, to a book fair, which all sound like sort of archetypal peacetime activities, but the art and the music and, and the poems and the novels that you write about are all, one way or another, more or less directly re- responses to the war. Exactly. There, there is um, an energy and an intensity and a sense of, of purpose uh, in in all these things, um, and that energy and sense of purpose, it's it's not very detached. It uh, it sometimes spills over into pure rage and hatred 
because um, much of the much of the art, or in the case of the book fair, much of the of the conversation on the stages um, is is dealing with events that are that are extremely fresh. Um, and I I made I had one very important realization for for myself when I was in Kiev um, about the, the the phases of the of the war, and uh, there are different levels of of sort of anger and and fear and uh, sense of um, of outrage. Uh, of course, the invasion itself was. Um, a, a source of, of outrage and indignation uh, and anger. Uh, but people did not, they, they sort of expected of the Russians, they weren't surprised. Uh, they expected uh, the Russians to behave having invaded in a certain way, um, and they did. And as, as furious as people were, they they hadn't reached the level that they reached later when the news came out of the kind of atrocities that the Russians were carrying out. Um, the, uh, particularly the atrocities in the villages north of Kiev and, and these sort of commuter towns like, uh, like Butcher um, and, and Yipian. And that was a change. So several months after the invasion, there was a whole new wave of, uh, of, of horror and shock and fury. And, and the war became something completely different. Everyone in, I, I think everyone in Ukraine, almost everyone in Ukraine then felt, well, this is not just about um, can we uh, defeat Russia um, or or will we uh, surrender and have some either become a, a sort of a puppet regime of Putin um, or actually be part of Russia? Um, people began to feel, well, this is just I, if, if the Russians come here, we could be we could be tortured. Um, we could be murdered for whatever reason. Somebody could denounce us and we'll be shot. Um, our, our, our daughters could be could be raped. We could be raped. Um this this was a new level of of fear and of hatred and and that's that's important to understand that 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 change and and even though kiev is far from the fighting now reasonably far um it's very close to those places where these things uh were first manifest i mean is that hatred and rage is there a distinction in people's minds between between Putin and between army officers and army soldiers and the troops who are carrying out these atrocities and the people who are ordering them to, and the idea of the the other Russians who are who are in Russia and are not involved in this, and many of whom I remember. I mean, I think we talked about this before, and you've written about it before. That the the distinction between Ukrainians and Russians is is complicated. That you have, you know, there are people who live in Kiev who have relatives in Moscow and so on. So how this idea of the Russians who are hated and feared and the object of this anger, is it sort of how indiscriminate is that? Is it is it uh, the Russians and has it, has it split into this us and them? And what about people who have cousins in, in St. Petersburg? Nobody I spoke to mentioned family in Russia. That, that seems to be last year's issue. Um, and uh, 
I, I think just a lot of people have cut off their, their relations. I mean, I think realistically, should this war end um, and uh, or stop, I think it's, it's much more likely to stop than end if you understand the distinction. Um, I I think if the if the shooting stops, Russia lifts its naval blockade, uh, stops firing missiles, um, then uh, perhaps after two or three years, um, it, it, people might be able to start talking normally about, um, you know, without hate about the Russians again. Um, but f- for the time being, it's it's quite universal. Um, and you have degrees, you have people, and perhaps they are the people whose, whose first language, the Ukrainians whose first language is Russian, uh, will be less likely to, um, to talk uh, in terms of, of the terrible things that the Russians have done. Um, but for everyone, it's all understood. Uh, and the difficulty is in, in answering your question, um, for me, the outsider, uh, if I raise a question such as the question that you have just asked with a Ukrainian, um, then they are very, very sensitive to any defense of Russia's behavior, however that might be manifest, whether it's Putin or Putin's generals uh, or um, or just an ordinary Russian person. Um, so they might have that conversation amongst themselves when they know that they all understand that Putin is in the wrong and Russia is in the wrong uh, and uh, and Russia as a country is doing these terrible things to Ukraine. But if an outsider raises this question, then there is uh, an instinct, I think, to be to be defensive and to sort of um, screen out um, nuance uh, just for fear that there might be any misunderstanding that Ukraine is ready to forgive Russia anytime soon. There's also the question of, I mean, you've talked about Russian speakers, so this question of of language and the, that you you speak Russian, as you say in the piece, you don't speak Ukrainian. I mean, I noticed also that you're calling the city Kiev, whereas I've, you know, which I've now started doing as well, because you have, but when I, in my introduction, I referred to Kiev, these, this question of, so was it when you spoke to people, did you approach them in Russian? Did you approach them in English? Or do you have sort of enough rudimentary Ukrainian to, to start a conversation in, in Ukrainian to, and ask, is it all right if we speak Russian? I mean, how did that and how did that language affect your interactions with people? It's it's very interesting now what's happened in in let's let's say central Kiev. Um, you know, as one might say, the central Paris or Manhattan, um, or, or um, I don't know, North London. Um, the, um, the, because you're not just talking about two languages, you're not just talking about Russian and Ukrainian. Now, a third language has very much entered the mix, a sort of nominally neutral, um, as the Ukrainians might think of it, um, language, namely English. Uh, Ukraine, uh, Kiev has become, uh, to a much greater degree than I can ever remember, um, an English-speaking city, and I don't—I don't mean that people are going around speaking English to each other. I, I mean that uh, it's a safe for, for foreigners in Kiev now. It's a safe language to start a conversation in, um, because uh, the, sort of the English-speaking countries have been uh, among the most supportive of Ukraine's struggle, uh, and 
if you don't speak Ukrainian and you do speak Russian, for example, uh, then you can always start in English. And I mean, the, the difficult thing is then people will try and speak English, even if they don't actually speak it, uh, apart from a few words, because they think, oh, this person doesn't understand any other language. Uh, and the question then is, so that, that might well be your initial approach. If I'm like, I was, uh, I was looking for um, some kind of institute, I can't quite remember where it was, and I, I blundered into this a very old school book market um, on the outskirts of Kiev. Uh, and it was lots and lots of little kiosks where people were selling books of all kinds, mainly in Russian. Uh, and the people who were there were mainly older um, in their in their 50s and 60s. And and I felt I felt that it was OK to start the conversation in Russian. I thought these people probably don't speak English um, and um, and uh and it's probably okay to speak russian rather than ukrainian uh and um and that that proved to be a safe bet i mean it's it's not very not very proper to uh, make these assumptions about people based on their appearance but uh, it turned out to be a safe bet you know and i didn't i don't think there was an occasion where i really uh landed myself in in hot water by which i mean made people really annoyed um but you know you're aware of the sensitivity and not just between me, the foreigner, and the at the locals, um, but you know, between traditionally Russian-speaking Ukrainians, people who who grew up in in a Russian-speaking household whose first language is Russian, um, and and people who whose first language is Ukrainian, but the most zealous sort of um, self-appointed police of the new situation, as you might expect, are the people who used to speak Russian. Uh, but always had the ability to speak Ukrainian, have now made the switch uh, and will say, um, uh, oh, um, why are you speaking the language of the of the uh, the occupiers? That might be a, a formula that they would use. Uh, and and then the Russian speaking Ukrainian will probably switch to Ukrainian because they probably can. Um, there's, there's a much... Before the war, there was a much greater potential for people to speak Ukrainian than uh, than there actually is. I, I don't know of any kind of comparable situation in any other country because the two languages are close. They're different enough that you can speak Ukrainian with a Russian accent. Um, you can even speak Ukrainian using a kind of Ukrainian where all the words are Ukrainian technically speaking, but um, you're choosing of, of two possibilities. You're choosing the one that sounds more like a Russian word. I had this interesting experience at the book fair of listening to a panel in Ukrainian, which I, I didn't really understand. I, I was just waiting to speak to somebody on the panel. Um, and a woman stood up and started, she was clearly very, very articulate and confident. Um, and, and she was speaking Ukrainian, but I noticed that I could understand um, more of what she said that I could with most Ukrainian speakers. Uh, and I asked somebody about this afterwards. I said, is there a kind of Ukrainian where you sort of you choose the more Russian words? Uh, and they said, yes, that, that is definitely a, a way of doing it. You know, if, if you are Russian um, or you, sorry, if you're a Russian speaker primarily and you want to make the switch to Ukrainian, then you can speak this sort of more Russian Ukrainian. Um, and in fact, that is what Zelensky does. That is the kind of Ukrainian he speaks. You know, there are certain there's a certain lexicon of um, more 
old school West Ukrainian, um, exquisite Ukrainian words uh, that uh, that that kind of Ukrainian speaker will not draw upon because it's it's hard. It's a whole new, uh, you know, it's a whole new 20,000 words of vocabulary that they 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 haven't had time for because they can get by with what they've got. So it is it is this very very complex delicate situation, um, but there's a particular facet um, of of this which I I must admit I didn't really go into. That's perhaps something for a for a future visit. But it's very fundamental because it refers to names, and um, for every canonical Russian name first name. Um, there is a um, there is a Ukrainian equivalent, and sometimes it's the same, but usually it's slightly different. Uh, and um, it's one thing to to switch from a Russian language to a um, to Ukrainian and speaking both languages, but then to start going around and introducing yourself to people or saying, "No, don't call me Mikhail. I'm Mikhailo." Um, and uh, that is again something that is unusual about this interface between these these two languages. That that your name is probably also going to change. You're not going to be Mikhail anymore. The the name that your that your mother called you um, most often. You're going to be Mikhailo, um, or you're going to be Volodymyr instead of Vladimir. Vladimir, um, or you're going to be Igor instead of Igor. Uh, I mean, that's you might say that's just accent rather than uh, pronunciation rather than uh, name. But it's it's, you know, for a lot of names, it's really quite, quite Alexander rather than Alexander. It's 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 quite it's quite fundamental. You mentioned talking to a man in a village outside Kiev who you say spoke Surzhik, the mix <laughs> of Russian and Ukrainian common in villages outside Western Ukraine. That's hard to understand. And he'd been born in Vladivostok. So, yes. I mean, at, at, at the risk of uh, making the listeners' heads spin, um, there is that that further um, twist uh, in that, particularly um, older people in in the rural areas, uh, and and this can be the case um, in in if you like the far east of Ukraine, um, which have traditionally traditionally been seen as more uh, spiritually, shall we say, close to Russia. Um, People will speak this this mixture, Surzhik, um, and it's not really a language in the sense of of having um, its own uh, rules. Uh, it's not something you can learn. It's just your villages or even your individual mix of of Russian and Ukrainian um, picked up over the years of accretion of um, uh, personal and radical political changes over over a century um i i think in i i, I don't know i mean it's, it's a very interesting question how far back does it go probably hundreds of years to to the time when um when there was this 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 tension between the uh the turks the um the uh russians coming from the north the um the Ukrainians um, coming um, from uh, from the west, from the sort of the Polish lands, um, and and this this language, this this uh, dialect was was created. Um, it's um, and and I I imagine that this is something that is going to disappear um, over the next fifty years uh, because it's um, 
it's it's very much a sort of rural survival of people who haven't had a huge involvement with the school system um and and the world of of um standardization and the and the internet um you know i mean uh the tech giants and google and uh, Microsoft, they're, they're always going to be ready to add another official language that has a government attached to it, um, and maybe even a, a second language like, like Gaelic, but um, some crazy mix um, that doesn't have uh, its rules, like uh, like Surshik, is probably going to disappear. But it's all, it's all part of the mix, and it, uh, it does undermine further this Russian fantasy um, that... Um, that the Ukrainians are really Russians in disguise. So you, you met this man who speaks Surzhik in a village outside Kiev. Did the war feel closer there? Well, I thought it might because it's actually not that close to Kiev. Um, it's, um, it's it's two hours drive on, on a good road north of Kiev in a region uh, which is just next to Russia called Chernihiv. And the Russians were, were there. Uh, they were there in this village. And um, and yet, it it seemed terribly peaceful. And um, again, with this sort of shagginess of of the summer and the trees and the um, the abundant um, greenery of the of the the kitchen gardens of of the Ukrainian village, um, you don't immediately notice um, the damage that's been done. Uh, and in fact, some of the damage has already been repaired. You know, the, the, all the all the windows were broken. Um, this was the scene of uh, quite fierce fighting um, as the the Russians took the village and the Ukrainians tried to take it back. Uh, I mean, I think what we've seen over the course of the war is, um, you know, there are all sorts of specific exclusions. But in general, um, the Russians have been far more destructive of towns and villages than the Ukrainians have been in trying to take them back. Um, but there's obviously a, a lot of destruction is, is always done when a when a village um, changes hands. And um, luckily for this village, Yehidne, um, it, the fighting didn't go on long enough for it to be completely levelled, um, as, as has happened with, with other places. Um, so, but they had this particular horrific experience there where the entire population of the visit, village um, hundreds of people were herded into this tiny school basement and kept there for for a month uh, without um, any proper care or sanitation, medical attention, um, food, water. I mean, they had a little trickle of food and water, but uh, otherwise um, there was no there was no sanitation. There wasn't really enough air in there, um, and ten people died. Uh, and when they were allowed to go out for a, a few minutes to bury them, um, they got shot at, and more of them were injured. Um, it was um, horrific, horrific treatment, and there were children in in that basement as well. So um, this this horrific thing happened. This this war crime, really, you know, this crime, and uh, and there we were, this group of um, of ravers and me. Um, these these young people, all dressed in their music festival clothes, um, going to this this particular place uh, for this particular style of um, of kind of charity repair work, 
where uh, you work hard taking bricks from the rubble and stacking them for in order to use for for rebuilding projects um but while you're working there is this kind of pounding techno music going on from a from a stage and the djs are mixing and uh uh setting off smoke machines and um and you know you start dancing as you're as you're throwing the bricks from one person to another um i don't think anyone got injured and uh and and it was a strange contrast, and I did wonder how the villagers would would react because you you never know. I mean, I've I've been in um, in post disaster communities before, where um, where people have been very relaxed and friendly um, in the face of outside visitors, and I've been in, in villages in places where they've been very hostile and skeptical uh, towards. Um, outsiders after these disasters but here they seem to be seem to be very welcoming I, I i had the sense that they they really appreciated the attention their their village was getting uh, a lot of repair work had already been done um the the great um uh, sorrow of the villages of ukraine and and this is also true of a lot of villages in in eastern europe and russia is of the young people leaving and going to the city uh, and so from where I stood, it wasn't just about um, people coming uh, from their kind of office jobs in the city at the weekend to, to, to help repair. It was also about the young people showing that they cared um, about the about the countryside, that uh, about the people who lived in the countryside, that uh, that Ukraine was not a place that was divided between uh the slick city and the and the and the boondocks but they were all they were all one uh, and i think that was what the um the um the mainly elderly population of the visit village felt um and, and appreciated uh and um and so yeah it, it was it was quiet and um I, I must say none of the none of the ravers uh uh, hauling bricks looked as if they were working quite as hard as this woman who I think must have been in her 90s who was like bent double literally double like a, like a paperclip um, over her potato patch um, in the hot sun uh, but um, you know it was all part of the same of the same landscape and and it, it felt it felt good. You're saying that you compare Kiev now to Paris during the First World War is there a sense in which the war in the the south and the east of the country is the same kind of war as the first world war that this very slow war of attrition with small advances a few kilometers here a few kilometers there what's happening on the front line well uh yes it it is uh, the war is is still being waged with extreme ferocity in the south and the east of the country um in the east, uh, in the Donbass, um, and I should say that all these areas where the war is now taking place, it's four uh, what they call oblasts, which is the Ukrainian word for regions. Um, we're just talking about four places. I mean, all right, Kharkiv is involved, but I'm putting that to one side. It's Luhansk and Donetsk. Those are what's called the Donbass. That is the east. Um, Russia claims them as Russia. Uh, and in the south... We're talking about the regions that are between Donbass and Crimea, 
One of them is called Kherson, and the other one, where the fighting is currently fiercest, is called Zaporizhia. Uh, and these southern regions, they stretch from um, sort of central Ukraine down to the sea and to Crimea. In the east, uh, and sorry, Russia claims Kherson and Zaporizhia. So all these four regions, Russia says it's now changed its constitution to say, actually, this is ours. Um, we It belongs to us, the whole thing. And they control... Um, more or less somewhere between a half and two-thirds of, of this territory. They don't control any whole of one any one of these regions. So in the east, uh, in the Donbass, uh, the fighting is, is ferocious. You have um, experienced Ukrainian troops who've been fighting uh, for one and a half years. Uh, to And, and it's a, a sort of seesawing between defence and offence on, on both sides. Um, the uh, the Russians have now shifted to defending what they have, what they already hold. Uh, the Ukrainians are making very sort of slow incremental gains. Uh, both sides are um, have taken a lot of losses, uh, both of men and equipment. Uh, they are, there is not much progress there, and it is not seen by those specialists who um, who follow this closely. Um, and by me, um, as a a war-winning um, area. Uh, and um, it's not clear um, how essential the, the military command or the senior government of Ukraine um, feels it is to pursue the war in Donbass to the original uh, internationally recognized borders of Ukraine. That's not to say they've given up, um, although they will give up, um, but it doesn't seem to be the biggest priority. Any land they can win back from the Russians in the east is is a bonus, um, and any damage they can do to the Russians in the east is a bonus, and particularly any Russian forces that they can draw away from the south, um, distract in the east, that is also a bonus. Um, but it is not. It does not seem like this is the area where the war is going to end for Ukraine, for Russia. Um, the focus really is is on the south, um, and basically on Ukraine's drive south towards the sea, uh, towards the Sea of Azov, towards um, Crimea, and particularly towards this town of Militopol, which is the main town of this region. Uh, and were Ukraine able to reach Militopol, um, it would move things much, much closer to the end game. It would give Ukraine effective control back over these two provinces that Russia claims. Um, it would force Russia to make some very hard decisions. It would probably force Russian forces in the south to retreat to Crimea. And once in Crimea, the Ukrainians would not find it hard to bottle them up. And um, and prevent them causing any more trouble. Uh, so that is that is the the task that the Ukrainians have set themselves, um, and it doesn't seem very far from where the line is at the moment um, to Militopol. It's only fifty miles, um, but the offensive has now been going on for more than two months, uh, and the Ukrainians have have barely got a few miles. Um, they're still stuck um within a short distance of their start lines and there's a very there are a number of very good reasons for that um 
in the first place, the Russians have had um, a year, more than a year, to build uh, this belt of defences uh, right across the south, all the way from um, from the river Dnieper to their lines in Donbass, um, hundreds of miles. And, and these lines are very, very strong in themselves, even before you, you sort of fill them with, with weapons. Um, you have ditches, very deep ditches, which are difficult for armoured vehicles to cross, any vehicles to cross. Uh, you have uh, concrete obstacles, which are difficult for armoured vehicles to get past. Uh, you have um, trenches, uh, you have uh, strong points, concrete pillboxes, uh, and um, most of all, you have uh, minefields, uh, very, very thick minefields, mines laid in some cases uh, more than one deep. Uh, and then on top of all that, you add the, the troops uh, with their um, fire designed in such a way that they can catch the attackers from, uh, from multiple directions. Um, and then you have um, advantages that Russia has in weapons that Ukraine has no real way of countering, particularly these um, helicopters, which are able to fire very, very long range anti-tank missiles over perhaps um, 10 miles. Uh, so the Ukrainians can't see them, but they can kill uh, the Ukrainians. So, um, so that's the obstacle. Uh, and against this, Ukraine has mustered a large army and a very large number of um, of many, including many Western supplied weapons. Um, and uh, but the army is still not not large as large as you would like to have to face such a large Russian force. Um, it's it's more like one to one rather than as you would as you would like as a as an attacker. They have more like five to one. Um, and uh, or at least three to one and uh they uh they lack certain things that a nato force for example would assume uh that it would have the the classic way that a nato army would go against this russian defense and it should be said that no nato army ever has done anything like that um but if in theory what they would do would be they would spend weeks, perhaps months beforehand, um, using their very, very powerful air force, brackets, America's very powerful air force, to um, to try and wipe out as far as possible uh, both the Russian air force um, and the Russian anti-aircraft systems. In other words, to get what's called air superiority over the, over the battlefield. Um, and once that was done... They could then start moving forward in this kind of very, very intricate, complex business of coordinating uh, multiple units, multiple kinds of units um, over um, over a big battlefield, uh, breaking through these these lines with all sorts of um, you know sometimes with brute force, sometimes with with um, clever equipment to to clear ways through minefields. But it would all be covered by a massive air force uh, and. And the idea would be, and, and I've seen this happen in action in, uh, in Iraq anytime, or Afghanistan, anytime there's a problem with, on the ground, the, the local commander on the ground will get on the phone and say, I need an airstrike. And um, within a few minutes, uh, uh, Western planes, probably American planes, would be overhead um, uh, throwing ordnance at, 
at the the strong point and and they could move forward the ukrainians have none of this they they are not they just do not have the capability um to even begin thinking about air superiority and even if they did they would have very very few planes uh with which to take advantage of it um and uh there's talk about uh ukraine getting western planes but um even if they got 100 F-16s, um, it's a very capable plane, but it's it's not the American Air Force, which is a whole set of multiple specialist um, outfits. Um, so uh, they've got that massive problem. They, they, they lack um, the equipment. Uh, some say that there is also a problem of um, method and training, that um, these new, um, until recently, unblooded, troops have um have had some very short-term training in the west you know nothing like the kind of length of time that a a western infantryman would would get to learn how to do their trade uh but the senior officers and this is the more this is more true the further up you get the scale the senior officers uh have not had any comparable training of carrying out these incredibly complex um uh, operations of coordinating multiple units across a vast battlefield. Um, and uh, you have a sort of political structure where you have these relatively small, in Western terms, units of, of brigades, and they all have a certain degree of autonomy. Um, and uh, so the Ukrainians initially tried to do it um, in something like what they thought was the NATO way, um, and that didn't work out. They lost a lot of men. They lost a lot of equipment. Uh, and they have now moved to something like a war of attrition, uh, something like the the First World War. Um, and you look at the map of Ukraine. It's huge. And to actually see the fighting, you have to zoom in to a tiny, tiny space of bare, you know, a few miles wide um, where the everything is being funneled uh, and... The, the Ukrainians have been trying for two months to crack this um, this single set of strong points on a few miles of ridge um, south of a town called Arikhiv, um, a little village called Robotino, um, Robotino, so, I'm sorry, I'm pronouncing this wrongly, Robotinye. Um, it's a ridge a few miles long. It goes south and then east and then north. Uh, and... Uh, when you think, when you read about this, uh, about about the First World War, you you think about um, lines of troops marching across the um, marching, coming out of their trenches and marching across a, a sort of lunar landscape. It's not really like that, but the thing that really chimes for me, um, and that this hasn't been talked about much in terms of the the Western reporting of the battle, but it's the thing that you often get in these stories about um about the first world war is the battle for the ridge and there's a picture of this this sort of bare rise in the ground hardly a, a hill at all it's just a sort of slight rise in the ground but if you control it then you immediately have this advantage over the over the attackers and um and the uh that's what is happening at the moment the ukrainians are trying to take these ridges these these little rises in the ground uh, and uh, that's what it all comes down to. Uh, the Russians hold the ridges and the Ukrainians are trying to take them back and they're finding it very hard. And the great, the great hope 
uh, of the Ukrainians is that they have managed to, with, with a lot of help from, from the West in terms of equipment supplies, they have managed to massively reduce the original advantage that the Russians had going into this war, namely this huge uh, advantage in artillery. It is basically, and it always has been, an artillery war. Uh, what the Ukrainians have been able to do with the help of this um, Ukrainian, uh, this Western equipment and their own ingenuity and effectiveness is they're very, very good at using their artillery to take out the Russians' artillery. So over the past couple of months, even though the offensive has stalled in terms of movement, they have been reducing the uh, the advantage of the Russians in terms of artillery. There is a hope that eventually it will get to such a point where um, the Ukrainians actually have an advantage in artillery, and that could swing the balance in their favour, uh, because no line of defences can withstand um, a, a sustained um, artillery barrage. And it, it's, it's horrible. It's brutal. It's uh, the idea of this. It's, it's become a kind of almost actuarial operation. Um, again, rather like the First World War, when people are talking about, oh, has this country got more people to, to kill or has this country got more people to kill? Um, and has how many how many tens of thousands of shells can our factories produce? Can they produce more tens of thousands of shells than this uh, factory? Um, and um, there was always the possibility behind this kind of uh, Western Ukrainian panic about shell shortages. There was always the possibility that the vast industrial potential of not just NATO, but um, all the countries who, shall we say, do business with NATO, that that vast industrial potential, once it got going, was just capable of producing an unlimited quantity of shells. And the first signs um, are beginning to appear that that is starting to happen. Uh, because it's much easier and, dare I say, much cheaper for anxious Western countries who, who want to support Ukraine, but uh, I hope it's not going to cost too much. Um, it's much cheaper and easier for them to double, triple, quadruple the number of artillery shells they're capable of producing than it is for them to to make new planes or make new tanks for for Ukraine. And that is a process that, um, horrible as it may be, is now is now happening. And I am not sure that Russia is going to be able to to keep up even with the help of uh, of North Korea and Iran um so but but that's that's not going to happen soon we're talking about that that's that's something for for next year um if it happens uh so this idea that we had that um somehow russian resistance is going to crumble before christmas um Another reference to the uh, First World War there. It'll all be over by Christmas. Um, it won't be over by Christmas. Uh, and, um, I mean, you know, it, it never pays to underestimate, or it has not paid so far to underestimate the Ukrainians. I was very sceptical um, this time last year that they would be able to um, to drive the Russians back across the Dnieper. Uh and um and the the and they did 
But also they drove the Russians mostly out of Kharkiv and that came completely out of the blue for me. So what do I know? Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people um, who study military matters much more closely than I do um, did not see that coming and were sceptical. But it happened. Um, now, there were very good reasons why the Russians pulled out of the west bank of the River Dnieper. Um, and uh, before a certain series of events happened, the battles there looked very much like the battles uh, in the south now. The Russians were, the Ukrainians were getting, making very, very slow progress and were taking huge losses in the process. Um, and, you know, they were making it hard for the Russians, but they weren't really getting anywhere. What made the difference there was that the Ukrainians used these very clever American rockets to take down the bridges over the over the river uh, and the Russians thought if we don't leave now then we're going to be trapped here um, we won't be it won't be possible to get supplies to us fast enough um, we uh, we've got to leave we've got to pull out um, otherwise we'll be captured and it will be a, a massive massive defeat because there's one thing to be beaten and pushed back there's another thing to have tens of thousands of prisoners taken uh so they actually thought a very effective um retreat um that was that was very successful uh from their point of view it was a bit like it's got russian dunkirk there um but the ukrainians got what they wanted they got they got that part of um of ukraine back and they drove the russians back across the river but there's there's no obvious equivalent to blowing up the bridges in the south you can see now that the um, that the Ukrainians are trying to sever the bridges connecting Crimea to mainland Ukraine. Um, they're they're having some success with that, and obviously every time they do that, it makes it harder for the Russians to supply themselves, and also gives the Russians again this kind of frisson of fear that they're um, they're about to be surrounded. But the whole army of the south, the Russian army of the south, can still be supplied from the east. There's no real threat um, to yet to that, the, the routes from the east of Ukraine uh, leading to the south of Ukraine for the Russians. Uh, so there's, and, and there are no bridges that the Ukrainians can, can blow up or, or not enough anyway. Um, so quite how Ukraine might reproduce the conditions that led to a Russian retreat west of the river is is not clear. Um, and uh, absent that, as the Americans say, um, it, it's not really clear how we go from here unless it, it just it, it's two years of, um, of artillery battles. But then there's the question of what might the what might the Russians do other than other than hold the ridges? What might the Russians do next? I mean, they're a dam was blown up at the beginning of June, and almost certainly by the Russians. They, Russia still controls, is this right, the nuclear power station at Zaporizhia, which I think is the largest nuclear power station in Europe. I mean, Russia could, could change things. They could, they could. But um, yeah, this is something the Russians are very, the, the Ukrainians are very concerned about. Um, if If the Russians were capable of blowing up that dam, then why would they not... Um, carry out the same thing um, in uh, in the nuclear power station, but there is there are two points about that. Um, the first one um, is 
Now, this might seem like a strange thing to say, but uh, were the Russians to take a political decision uh, and then a military decision to blow up the Zaporizhia nuclear power station, of course, they can place explosives and do their damnedest, but it might not be as bad as it sounds. Um, those reactors um, are incredibly strong. They're not like the Chernobyl power plant. A Chernobyl-style power plant can be blown up and make um, and cause a terrible disaster over a very large area. Um, there are more reactors at uh, Zaporizhia. There are six of them, um, but they're all shut down and they're very, very difficult to blow up. They're made of this incredibly strong um, concrete and then inside the, the concrete there is incredibly strong uh, steel uh, and um, they are they are well contained. They are um, designed to be fail safe and uh, it would be really, really difficult. Um, I mean, you could drop a nuclear weapon on the nuclear power plant. Um, I know it's, it's extraordinary that we're even saying that, but um, but then you'd obviously be in an entirely new world. Um, and I, I don't think that's going to happen. So uh, it, it's what I'm saying is it's not easy for it would not be easy for the Russians to um, to cause a large scale ecological disaster um, with explosives. Uh, even in a nuclear power station. But more to the point, what would that signify? I think you would have to say that if the Russians were seriously considering uh, blowing up the Ukrainian, uh, blowing up the Saporizhia nuclear plant, then that would be a retreat gesture, which is slightly odd in the context of the dam, because did, if they blew up the dam and meant it to blow up in the way that it blew up, and yet they still intended to hold on to Zaporizhia and, and Kherson regions, they were really, really shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, because although the immediate consequence of the dam being blown up was a, a lot of death and destruction, um, the long-term consequences uh, are extremely grave for the entire economy of, of the South. Um, it, it's a, a death blow to the region's agriculture uh, because it destroys the irrigation system, not just of Zaporizhia and Kherson, but of Crimea. Um, so that was that was strange, and and the most likely scenario seems to be that they 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 intended to sort of half blow it up, but not to cause as much damage as they did. But the same logic comes into play with the nuclear power station. If they were to do that, and they really did intend to create um, a uh, a nuclear disaster. Uh, then the main areas that will be damaged are areas that are presently their strongholds in southern Ukraine. So if they intended to do that, it's hard to see that they would do it unless they planned to leave. So as as terrible it would be, um, sort of uh, environmentally and morally, um, it would at least mean that they had given up uh, and all they wanted to do was scorched earth um, in the lands they were leaving behind, a kind of a last act of, of vengeance and, and, and destruction. There is the possibility that they might carry out a reasonably ineffectual explosion uh, at the nuclear power plant uh, in order to blame the Ukrainians. Uh, but the sort of the 
false flag operations have been continually warned about since before the war began. Um, and those that Russia have carried out have been extremely small scale and completely inept. Um, and they have not done anything more more grandiose or skillful. Uh, so uh, for the time being, I'm a, I'm a bit skeptical. Um, so I, d I don't think, I, I think generally the idea of, of scorched earth is, is real. But I, I, I think the Russians are, are most likely to... Um, to continue to to prosecute this war militarily, uh, but also to try and um, degrade Ukraine's economy, as they have been doing um, uh, in respect of the uh, of the grain stores in uh, in Odessa, um, and and their continual destruction of of Ukrainian uh, infrastructure generally. I have so many more questions, but we've gone over the hour, so we should probably finish it there um and unfortunately i expect we will be having another one of these conversations in <laughs> six months time yeah. um james meek thank you very much thank you thank you tom you can read james meek's report from kiev in the latest issue of the lrb and watch a video of repair together at work on our website other pieces in the issue include Seamus Perry on Evelyn War and Enright remembering the first COVID lockdown in Ireland in 2020 and a piece by me on Sidney Riley, the so-called ace of spies. We're keen to know listeners' thoughts about the LRB podcast and would be grateful if you take a couple of minutes to respond to our survey. Go to lrb.me forward slash pod survey. That's lrb.me forward slash p-o-d-s-u-r-v-e-y, pod survey, all one word. Um, don't hold back. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening. Thank you.